Radio Studio at the George Washington Broadcast Center. Jack Armstrong. I can change a diaper with one hand. That's the fact, Jack. And Joe Getty. Joey, baby. I love entertaining people. I'm strong and Getty. But I know this. They're loco. So it's a hustle. Yeah, it's a hustle. And now, here's Armstrong and Getty. commencement addresses not that many um couple nothing ever stood out as like uh, memorable to me but i uh i saw three well two kids graduate from college uh, well not three that's right delaney's was virtual but um and there were a couple that were just terrible speeches just insufferable progressive garbage it was, it was tough to take, honestly. <clears throat> I mean, it's not like I sat there mad or anything. I just thought, oh, boy, more of this. Boring. You could have inspired these kids. You could have given them a dose of reality. You could have sent them off into the world realizing that they've got to scrap and claw and work hard and be creative and energetic and the rest of it. And But, no, you, you give them the whole, you're wonderful, you're incredible. What you've accomplished is just unbelievable. Yeah, with great inflation and the rest of it. No, it's not. I gave, if it makes you feel better, the kids weren't listening anyways. So. I, I gave Good a, point. I gave a speech at my community college because I was uh, I got some award and I gave a speech and in retrospect it's embarrassing. I'm glad I'm it's sure. pre YouTube so that there is not a 19 year old me giving that speech that anybody could look at because it's embarrassing in retrospect. On the other hand, you know you why? Had... Because I was 19 and 19 year olds don't know freaking anything. You child, it's it's, it's it's an apt point. Uh, so Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, gave a speech at Purdue University where he is the president and, uh, and, and wowed the folks. It was just excellent. You didn't hear about this. It got no coverage. Kamala Harris at the Naval Academy, lots of coverage. But among the things that uh, Mitch Daniels said, <clears throat> were these and i would have had the guys get taped together but that's a lot of work and it's summer and we're all feeling a little lazy (laughs) so instead i will read it to you for decades to come scholars and ordinary citizens alike will look back on your senior year trying he's talking about the pandemic trying to identify its consequences and imagine what lives so disrupted were like as they do so they will know more than we can know now about the results of the choices today's leaders made they will reach judgments with the benefit of hindsight about the wisdom and maturity with which our nation handled the challenge of this particular pandemic odds are not all those judgments will be favorable time will tell an ability to comprehend and work with complex facts and data has always been a part of Purdue's education at least since the industrial age that's been an essential tool of a useful life of the kind at which boilermakers excel they're a little uh, pump up the the grads for their alma mater that's fine he went on to say, but that's never been so near, nearly so true as today. Masses, massive amounts of information are being collected intentionally by us and silently by the machines we invent and use in daily life. Interpreting its meaning and discovering patterns within it is perhaps the most important skill in the economy of 2021. Our faculty has determined that data analysis, as we now call it, should be as universal a part of a boilermaker education as English composition. Pretty well-run school. You'll leave this stadium able to evaluate statistics and whether they are significant or meaningless. You'll know better than to confuse correlation with causation. You'll look at decisions critically and holistically, understanding that any objective pursued too far eventually yields diminishing returns not worth their cost. That, just as medicines have almost all actions produce collateral consequences, often collateral damage. Here he's getting to his point. It doesn't stretch a point to say that we wouldn't be meeting here today without those skills. Keeping Purdue open last fall 
Oh, did you hear that, people in blue states? Oh, that's interesting. Keeping Purdue open last fall so that you could stay on schedule and graduate today required the he daily... Must be speaking to an <clears throat> empty field, then. All the students must be dead. No, as it turns out, all of them were there. All of them. Keeping Purdue open last fall so that you could stay on schedule and graduate today required, here it is, and here is what Gavin Newsom, Gretchen Whitmer, Cuomo, and the thousands of others around the country, Anthony Fauci, although Fauci, to his credit, admits it. Here's what they're not doing. It required the daily examination of COVID-19 infection rates and patterns of its spread on and around campus. Prior to that, the decision to reopen it all involved a reading of the available data, which showed that people your age were at far less risk from the virus than from a host of other dangers. I attempted to re-bring up the fact that a Colorado hospital declared an emergency. They have so many suicide attempts by young people in their emergency room. Anyway, going back to Mitch Daniel. Starting soon, the decisions will be yours to make. In business, you start or join in causes in which you feel called to enlist or in the most important of all organizations, the families I hope you will form. What, wherever they are, the very essence of your coming leadership roles will lie in making hard choices. After weighing all the options, the competing priorities, and the uncertainties that even the biggest databases cannot totally eliminate, others will look to you to choose. The risk of failure, of a hit to one's reputation, or just that the gains don't outweigh the cost, all these can deter or even paralyze a person out of fulfilling the responsibility someone has entrusted to them. Should I make this investment or husband my cash? Take that job offer or stay where I'm comfortable? Engage in this debate or sit silently? Choose this life partner or play it safe? This last year, many of your elders failed this fundamental test of leadership. They let their understandable human fear of uncertainty overcome their duty to balance all the interests for which they were responsible. They hid behind the advice of experts in one field, but ignored the warnings of experts in other realms that they might do harm beyond the good they hoped to accomplish. Sometimes they let what might be termed the mad pursuit of zero In this case, zero risk of anyone contracting the virus. They let it block out other competing concerns, like the protection of mental health, the educational needs of small children, or the survival of small businesses. Pursuing one goal to the utter exclusion of all others is not to make a choice, but to run from it. It is not leadership, it's abdication. I feel confident your Purdue preparation won't let you fall prey to it. Mitch Daniels for president. Yeah, that's uh, that's why George Will, one of my favorite com- columnists, always is pushing Mitch Daniels as the next president. <laughs> Has been yeah. for years, but he's bald headed, not very good looking. So, nah, that's uh, that's good stuff, and to my mind, clearly true. I will uh, forward this on to Mike Hansen, our executive producer. He will post it at armstrongandgetty.com under A&G's hot links so you can find it and send it around. I had not uh, we'll heard probably of... ha- We'll hammer this tomorrow morning early, too. It's so good. I had not heard a word of that following you know, we... my mainstream news over the oh, last not. week. Of course not. And these are things we have been saying for a very long time. Uh, he, uh, he, he, he uttered them in an extremely concise and eloquent way. It's really great writing um it's astounding to me and more than a little frightening that that point was not only missed for a little bit but it was missed 
for the entire time of the pandemic up till now by certain leaders and utterly ignored, I mean, maliciously by teachers unions, for instance, um, but that, that that point is so little understood and so little discussed. The fact that to choose one goal to the utter exclusion of all others is not to make a choice. It's running from it. It's running. It's it's hiding as opposed to making the difficult decisions. It, you know what it is? It's It's pretending there's only one competing interest so that you will never be asked to balance them and make a decision. It's cowardice, utter cowardice. I don't know if a good story will ever be written of this that that, that people will hear. No, no, probably not. Oh, just because we're so siloed and it's it's uncomfortable. And listen, I'm some woke New York Times reporter who doesn't have the life experience and good sense to understand how full of crap I am some of the time. They might run into something like this and feel its truth and recognize its power, but it's pretty freaking embarrassing to admit that. And they're humans. You know, I'm a human, too. I don't like admitting horribly embarrassing things either. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. So this is from a guy named Sahil Bloom, who uh, he tries to demystify business and finance and a bunch of different things in Twitter thread. I'll just read from his Twitter thread. Why not do it that way? Humans are astonishingly bad at setting goals. We consistently establish targets that invite manipulation. Goodhart's law is a simple mental model. And I had not heard of this. If I had, I'd forgotten it. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. That is Goodhart's law. We'll explain what that means in a moment. and Please I think, do, because I got my what-the-what face right. going. I think you'll be able to think of it examples where this has happened in your workplace or maybe even done it in your own life at home or something like that. If a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. If a measure of performance becomes a stated goal, humans tend to optimize for it regardless of any associated consequences. That's just the way we're built. And the measure hmm. loses its value as a measure. Goodhart's law is named after a British economist named Charles Goodhart, who came up with the concept in 1975. He wrote that any observed statistical regularity will tend to collapse once pressure is placed upon it for control purposes. Again, I'll have examples explaining this coming up. The concept was popularized uh, by a woman in a 1997 paper when she called it Goodhart's law. When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. Let's get to the examples. Um, Indian cobras and Soviet nails. The cobra effect. You've probably heard this story. There were too many cobras in India. So the British colonists started offering bounties for cobra heads. Locals began breeding cobras, killing them and turning the heads into bounties. And cobras were released into the wild. So there would be more cobras actually increasing the population of cobras. Oh, my gosh, right. It's like uh, like uh, stocking the lake with bass. Uh, remember, the, the law is um, when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure. We uh. will, despite any negative consequences, as if that's what you want out of me, I'm going to figure out how to get that, even if the overall goal of our school, our company, our family 
is, you know... Are reducing the number of cobras. Yeah, exactly. Right. It reminds me of the iron law of bureaucracy in a way, how the, the purpose becomes just perverted. The British measure of cobra elimination, cobra heads, became an explicit target and thus ceased to be a good measure of whether or not, you know, they're doing a good job of bringing down the number of cobras. Humans optimized for a goal in spite of their clear negative consequences. Um, and then we'll get to the Soviet nails. Soviet factories in the Soviet Union set goals based on the number of nails produced. You had two scenarios that occurred. Workers produced thousands of tiny nails, so they would have more nails. <laughs> then factories changed the goals to be based on weight of nails produced, and workers started producing very few massive heavy nails. <laughs> in both cases, the nails were useless, but they optimized the goal. Um, it, it, despite what, you know, without even, without even saying out loud what the point of the whole thing was, you know, we optimized for that particular thing. Uh, the Soviet, Soviet measure of nail production, quantity, or weight became an explicit target and thus ceased to be a good measure. Humans optimized for it in spite of clear negative consequences. Those are from history. Where do we see Goodhart's law in action today? How about an education? You're probably ahead of us on this. Traditional education has lost its way. Measures such as standardized test scores and graduation rates, that's a big one in California, oh, sure, yeah. became targets, so humans optimized around them. The result, an assembly line system that fails to promote creativity and critical thinking in our children, and also just lowering standards all the way around so you get a higher graduation rate, which has been the big thing in California. Those are, that's really interesting. And see if you, you know, think about whether you're not, you're doing it in your workplace. You came up with a goal. Are people optimizing to meet that goal? It, despite the fact that your overall performance, money made, whatever is going down. Right. I think this might be a symptom of having a data driven society too, because in, in yesteryear, the idea was you educate the children, but that's more difficult to, to measure. When you have a math genius, a, a, a kid who's gifted with words, somebody who excels at shop class and is going to rebuild uh, engines for a living and have a great living at it, uh, it's difficult to quantify, but you could see each one of those kids was educated. Yeah, the thing you have to, I think you have to realize is it, it clearly is human nature that if you give us a goal, we will optimize for that goal and ignore the big picture. Sure. Especially, you know, if you're making more money. I mean, in these cases of schools, if you're going to give schools more money for higher graduation rates, well, they're going to make sure kids graduate. Or yeah. higher test scores. What are you going to spend all your time doing? Prepping for those tests. Um, Sahil Bloom goes on to say, you've seen this movie before. Wells Fargo opening fake accounts to hit new account quotas. Amazon my- managers hiring people only to fire them so that they could hit internal turnover goals. CEOs managing to short-term stock goals. That's a big problem we've got all uh, with companies. Mm-hmm. Maybe you've worked for a company that seemed to have short-term stock goals that were uh, you know, working against the overall health of your company. Measures become targets and human beings begin manipulating them. He uses this example, which is a pretty good uh, one, I think. Approval ratings for presidents are a classic measure of the performance of politicians. But when approval ratings become the goal, they cease to be a good measure. Bad short-term decision-making to manipulate approval ratings becomes the norm. And long-term progress stalls. Absolutely true. 
I mean, for instance, uh, reforming our social programs, our social safety net, Medicare, Medicaid, uh, Social Security, etc. It is suicidal not to do it as a society. And yet we don't because in the short term, people will be persuaded by politicians to say they're trying to take away your checks. They're trying to take away your retirement, even though they're not. The entire housing crisis was this. It was, exactly. You have to make a certain number of loans in minority neighborhoods. Uh, right? Let's see. What do we do? Okay, these people don't qualify. Why don't we give them loans and create a complex insurance system, credit default swaps, where we actually get rich if we get poor? you got to give them points for creativity. I'm anyway. going to keep my eye out for Goodhart's Law for the rest of my life in uh, you know my own family structure or where I work or whatever. Yeah, it's a, it's kind of a letter of the law, spirit of the law thing. Yeah, the, the abso- letter of the goal, yep, the spirit yep, of the goal. Yep, ag- that's absolutely correct. And try to keep the spirit of what you're trying to accomplish in mind all the time when you're trying to optimize these various goals. You know, some days I picture the Almighty up in heaven chuckling at us, saying, what you fools don't understand is that everything washes out. Everything ends up being equal. Uh, You become a data-driven society, you completely give up intuition and the spirit of the goal. I understand data is very useful, but you've gotten nowhere. (laughs) I don't know why God is laughing at us, but in my scenario, he is. Wow, he's a very vengeful, uh, sarcastic God you've got. Yeah, he's at least snarky. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Idiots. Probably has has some hashtags. (laughs) Hashtag stupid homo sapiens. Am I wrong? (laughs) Now let's, let's take a look at the platypus. I'm pretty proud of that one. (laughs) My image, my elbow. Those people are idiots. (laughs) What is it? A duck? Is it a bear? It's a platypus. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. Luckily, some breaking news continues to keep Sean at bay. What is it that you have if we run out of material? Uh, Ten best Star Wars villains ranked uh, from the Den of Geek. Moff Gideon, number three, recency bias. There's no reason for him to be above Grand Admiral <laughs> Wait, Thrawn. no, 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 no. What? Us discussing it is not you doing it. Oh. Recency bias. <laughs> it's ridiculous, Den of Geek. Ridiculous. Supreme Court rulings coming out in June every day. Any day we're on the air, a big ruling could come out. This one, Joe will have to tell me how big a deal it is. The Supreme Court rules against permanent residency for some immigrants. The Supreme, oh. the Supreme Court ruled today. <laughs> I like the ruling, though. The Supreme Court ruled today that immigrants who entered the U.S. illegally and were later allowed to remain in the country for humanitarian reasons are not eligible to become permanent residents. A unanimous decision by the court. Wow. That could affect thousands of people, including many who have lived in the United States for years and had hoped, had hoped to obtain lawful permanent resident status. Justice Elena Kagan, writing for the court, said the decision was a straightforward application of U.S. law. Yeah, that's what a lot of us have been calling for for years. Let's just apply the laws we've already got. If you don't like them, we'll change them. We'll talk about changing them. But let's enforce the law. It's a straightforward application of the law. Again, a unanimous decision by the Supreme Court, which generally requires an immigrant to have been lawfully admitted to the U.S. before you can become eligible for a green card. The fact that you needed to exhale the carbon dioxide to speak that sentence is amazing to me. 
The decision. No, of this, you can't sneak in and oh, I guess we got to make you citizen now. This is an interesting kind of spin from the hill. Uh, spin, but true. The decision handed a legal victory to the Biden administration, who found itself at odds with a number of Democratic lawmakers and immigrant rights advocacy groups. So that's true. Yeah, they're absolutely under pressure from their left flank to just throw away the very idea of a border. Yeah. Huh. Wow. Unanimous. There are 400,000 people currently living in the U.S. under that uh, situation. You know, uh, it was, I had quite the experience Saturday evening. I was watching the news and watching a feature on people pouring across the border and the cartels and the rest of it. And just these buses full of people day after day after day coming across the country and us saying, well, you got a kid with you. So I guess you're in for good. And then I go to dinner and, and meet some lovely folks who are Brits who are now in the U.S. living Hello. in the U.S. And they, they didn't actually talk like that. And, um. Call your boss pudding, please. We don't have any pudding. Pardon me? Well, this restaurant doesn't serve pudding. If I might get to my point, uh, these people, uh, he was a lawyer. She is a, Something to do with, like, rehabilitation, medical rehabilitation, uh, post-operative, that sort of thing. Thoroughly lovely people. And they briefly detailed the incredible struggles they've had through the years trying to be allowed to stay in the United States. And the yin and the yang of it is enough to make you insane. Yeah, it really is. This is, well, it's, it's lawlessness. This is what you get with lawlessness. Um, there are more people that are, uh, what's got a hashtag now? Does it have a hashtag? It should have a hashtag. Knockout conspiracies emerge after a suspicious Floyd Mayweather Logan Paul video. Have you seen the video? Cause I just read about it. When you see the video, Floyd Mayweather last night hits the YouTube star. The star clearly is crumpling and the very strong Mayweather like holds him up. And just keeps him from falling over until he like gets his wits back about it. So it's seems pretty clear that Mayweather knocked him out or almost knocked him out and held him up until he got his his conscience back. What do you suppose uh, was going on there? I don't know. Who knows what their agreement was between the two of them? That's exactly where I was going, Sean. Your theory? It's better for business if I don't embarrass these people that I'm trying to fight. If yeah. I if I put on enough of a show, they get to say, "Hey, I went the distance with a world champ." Right? You get more of these fights. He said pre-fight that I've retired from boxing. I haven't retired from entertaining. He's just cashing checks. Okay. And he made All a couple right. million dollars. Yeah, I get that. I get from Floyd May. I get from Logan Paul's camp. Why? Listen, don't humiliate the guy. This is just brand building. We're gonna pay you a buttload of money to help build this guy's brand. All right, Floyd. Floyd gets it. He's a pro. Um, yeah, okay. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder. Well, the whole thing was obviously an exercise in cashing checks Mm -hmm. and only that. So, well, interesting. General Grievous all the way at number 10, you say, Sean. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. uh, I've never even heard any of these names before. Uh, you heard Moff Gideon. He was in the, uh, he was in the Mandalorian. That's the recency bias. He was in the most recent okay. show. He's at three. No, no reason he should be that high. Grand Admiral Thrawn. I understand why you wouldn't necessarily, uh, know him. He was based <laughs> largely in the, uh, kind of the ancillary books, not even really a, a, a George Lucas character, but, uh, very what, Grand Salon Thrawn? What did you say? Grand Admiral Thrawn, inspired oh. by Sherlock Holmes and legendary military strategists like oh, Alexander the Great. Right. Oh, jeez, you're killing me with this. Just killing me. 
So we've said for Kylo years. Kylo Ren at number eight. Oh, I'm I'm done. I'm done. Sorry. <laughs> yes, you are. You were done before. Please stop. So uh, we've said for years that Thomas Friedman's written some great stuff about the Middle East, but man, when it comes to uh, domestic stuff, he's insufferable. Not only that, but he's got this adolescent thing where he falls in love with ideas and then just goes crazy describing how wonderful they are and. Just he gets all enthusiastic and hormonal about various things. If I may step in here, because I think I know where you're going. I used to watch Charlie Rose every night. And Tom Friedman would be on Charlie Rose. Comparing notes on open robes and that sort of thing. Regularly. Regularly, given his speech about how much better they've got it in China with their government. And how oh. amazing it is. And wouldn't it be great if we could be like China? He did that all the time. And I'd always watch it and I'd think, really? Are you really saying this? Yeah, yeah. Well, Jonah Goldberg actually put had a piece in the Dispatch, which deals with some of the Tom Friedman stuff, but goes back to the progressive era in the 20th century. Woodrow Wilson and all those people, they were incredibly racist. I mean, they believed the government should have all power to do anything it wanted. There is no such thing as the natural rights of man. The only rights that exist on Earth are the rights that the government says you have and that they should have the right to toss the Constitution just perfectly affect humanity i mean there were they were monsters a lot of the the heroes of the democratic 20th century but anyway fdr had some some pretty bizarre thoughts in that direction too but anyway uh in 05 2005 thomas friedman wrote dear god in heaven forgive me my fins my sins not fins <laughs> he's not a dolphin he's a sinner forgive me my sins for i have been to china and i've had bad thoughts forgive me heavenly father for i have Cast an envious eye on the authoritarian Chinese political system, where leaders can and do just order that problems be solved. I cannot help but feel a tinge of jealousy at China's ability to be serious about its problems and actually do things that are tough and require taking things away from people. Dear Lord, please accept accept my expression of remorse for harboring such feelings. Amen. And then in his book, The World is Flat, there's a whole chapter titled China for a Day in which he explains how awesome it would be if America could have a Chinese-style dictatorship one day a year, because then you could impose your will on the country. And Jonah Goldberg wrote, switching to his piece, why it's as if the Federalist Papers, with all that stuff about checks and balances, divided government, and the need for cooler passions and diffuse power were brilliant. The one mistake Madison, Hamilton, and Jay made was not specifying that all that stuff should bind the government for only 364 days a year. On the 365th day, tyranny, tyranny day, policymakers could do whatever they want. Yeah, Tom Friedman would go on all the time about how in China, if uh, if she decides, wasn't she at the time, but if she decided now we needed a bridge here, they'd build the bridge in like two weeks. And it didn't have to go through all the crap that we have in our government. Well, we used to be able to do a lot of that. I was reading an article the other day about how the Empire State Building was built in about a year. And now there'd be no... At the height of the Great Depression, right? And now you no way you could even get the paperwork for environmental studies done in a year, let alone build a building like that in a year. No, no. You couldn't even apply. Yep. Uh, But then Friedman said a little more recently in 09... Watching both the health care and climate energy debates in Congress, it is hard not to draw the following conclusion. There is only one thing worse than one-party autocracy, and that is one-party democracy, which is what we have in America today. One-party autocracy certainly has its drawbacks. Oh, thank you for conceding that, Tom. But when it is led by a reasonably enlightened group of people, as China is today, 
it can also have great advantages. That one party can just impose the politically difficult but critically important policies needed to move a society forward in the 21st century. So after surveying China's enlightened policies, Friedman said, our one-party democracy is worse. And by the way, that's during a time where the Democratic Party controlled the presidency, the House, and the Senate by wide margins. He was complaining about the Republicans, which is odd. But there are, and, and the ACLU thing we were talking about a little bit earlier, there are absolutely signs that there are people on the left who believe they are so righteous and so right that they should be entrusted with installing a China-style single-party rule. Friedman, that was not an idle mental exercise. He was fantasizing and praising the reasonably enlightened people who lead China. It w- which was a lie, we now know. Yeah. Um, that was kind of the apex of us believing that they were going to be good guys. Well, that you know, the problem has always been you make somebody a king, you know, the wise and benevolent king is the best form of government, but you can't count on a wise and benevolent king. Um, Even and, if they're wise and benevolent when they take the throne, they won't stay that way. That's right. just humans at work. Sometimes yeah. they become villains, perhaps one of the top ten Star Wars villains. You just <laughs> don't know. Why do you keep bringing that back up again? I just kind of like playing with fire. I don't know what you're trying to do there. I kind of like walking up to the line. Now, set aside the performance that Adam Driver did for Kylo Ren. There's no reason for him. Like, just on the character alone, he shouldn't be number eight on this list. He's got to be top five, minimum. Boba Fett, please, get out of the top five. No idea what he's talking about. Not the slightest. Boba Fett. Armstrong and Getty. Armstrong and Getty. This is the best of Armstrong and Getty. The FDA has approved a new obesity drug that helped people drop weight by about 15%. Let me do some quick math. Participants lost weight steadily for 16 oh, months before plateauing. Be 15%. So for me, that'd Heck be about yeah. 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 That'd be, yeah. For, for listeners who don't know, I'm 475 pounds. So that's a fair amount of weight. He claims. I'm not. I'm really not. He's 575 pounds. <laughs> it's, uh, we is the name of the drug and, um, the FDA just approved it. So maybe you'll hear about it or ask, ask your doctor about we The problem was the old one was we go poo. If you ate the wrong thing, it's sudden. Un- and uncontrollable bowel movements. Now that's a side effect. I gotta think that at some point science is gonna come up with a drug that handles our lifestyles. Obviously, it would be better if we all exercised more and ate better, but let's live in the real world where we aren't doing that. And some sort of drug that, I don't know, just, just doesn't make that stuff stick. You eat that it- crap that does no good to your body and it just goes through you. Here's where I ruin everything. Joe's going to ruin everything. This is a little feature called Joe Ruins Everything. Play the theme music, Michael. Welcome to Joe Ruins Everything. Two, three, four. Woo! Come on. What do we have to tip you? What's going on in there? What are you doing in there? (laughs) I was having a computer issue. (laughs) All right. Uh, Anyway, uh, here's where I ruin everything. Remember. 
that insanely frustrating reality of human biology that once you get to a certain weight, your animal brain says that's the weight you should be. And if you cheat yourself, what cheat? If you uh, don't take in enough calories, if you lose weight, your brain is desperate to get back to that weight and will slow your metabolism and the rest of it. So if, if science really wants to do me a favor, that's what they, they would address fix. that. Yeah, that's the thing that needs to be fixed is the set point for your weight my doctor first mentioned this to me years ago before i ever read about it in the popular press that your brain gets a a set weight and then that's that's what you're going to be because for 99.9 percent of the existence of homo sapiens nobody ever got fat it was impossible so your body it just has it has like a one-way alarm losing weight losing weight we have a problem we have a famine here it doesn't matter if you started at 275 pounds right the alarm's not that sophisticated uh, another problem how much money is enough maybe you're thinking about that as you drive to work on a Monday hey, my stinking job my boss I'd like to see him or some of fire ants and put a bill in my hair <laughs> what now wow how much money is enough a simple thought experiment to give you the exact number you need to aim for the key is to not compare yourself with others because um, there are all kinds of studies that show if people next to you have nicer stuff, you feel like you need more. If you have nicer stuff than the people next to you, you feel satisfied. Whether in scenario A, your stuff was actually nicer than in scenario B. Positive Sean, the king of the aphorism with the, one of his favorite sayings. Comparison is the thief of joy. That is so good. So the real answer to figure out if you've got enough is to take a hard look at your own financial realities and come up with a goal number and keep that in mind. Uh, we've also talked about this over the years. It's usually around $75,000 a year. You know, it depends on where you live. Adjust it higher or lower for wherever you live. That up to that point, money does make you happier. It makes your life better. gives you higher life satisfaction. But above that number... It it really starts to go the other direction because you're spending time working to get more money that isn't going to make you any happier. Hmm. Um, and again, you have to adjust it for where you live. There are places where that's way ton of money. There are places where that's nothing. So. Yeah. But one way to calculate the point is to figure out how much money you'd need to make decisions based entirely on enjoyment and impact without pressure to earn. This is the goal of uh the FIRE movement, financial independence, retire early. It's boosters, oh, yeah, I've read a fair amount about it's this. It's boosters generally say that 25 times your expected annual expenses is enough. So if you can live on $50,000 a year comfortably, you need to save 25 times that, $1.25 million, and then you'll be okay to be able to pull mm. that off. So, again, you have to adjust that number up or down based on... Um, where you live or you know it could be your whatever you need although they have a term in here that i really like um lifestyle inflation it's really easy to fall for lifestyle inflation things you are perfectly happy with at 35 perfectly happy with this kind of car this kind of restaurant this kind of house at 55 you need much better well okay you know maybe you do maybe you don't but you well, might you were happy with it before so with all due respect to these hippies and their idiotic notions, I spend $50,000 on wine and cheese every year. <laughs> how, how and look I how we... happy I am. <laughs> but perhaps the best way to get a feeling for your goal number is a simple thought experiment. Suppose you're one of five people 
Okay. Who've been selected by a mysterious philanthropist to participate in a contest. What is going on with this mysterious philanthropist? The five of you <laughs> Why all... Why has he chosen us? The five of you all have comparable debt levels and costs of living, as well as similar middle-class financial situations. You're all roughly the same age, equally healthy, have the same number of children, and you all live moderately low-risk lifestyles. Now, do we start dying one by one like it's an Agatha Christie novel? or The key is to sneak up on one of the other ones behind them with a knife in your teeth. (laughs) Oh, so I did it. Wow. (laughs) No. Privately and one by one, a representative of the donor approaches each of you with a blank check and a pen and poses the following question. How much money would you have to be paid right here, right now, to retire today and never receive another dollar of income for the rest of your life? The catch is that whoever among the five players writes the lowest amount on the check will be paid that sum. The other four players will get nothing. So it gives you a great incentive to come up with the lowest number you possibly can that you think you could retire on without needing another dollar. It's like the prisoner's dilemma, but totally different. It's like the trolley car, only way different. <laughs> only completely dissimilar. Wow. Well, it depends what it's... age you are, obviously. If you went to a 23-year-old and asked him that question, and a 70-year-old, that's kind of unfair. It's like the marshmallow experiment with first graders, except not at all. <laughs> well, that's right. We're all the same in this scenario. Yes. This mysterious philanthropist. <laughs> I don't know, but it's a, it's a decent point to, uh, you know, and one, one advantage of this might be the earlier you figure out this number, you might, you might curb some of that lifestyle inflation a little. Yes. Yeah. It's an interesting question. I don't think it's a simple one. Uh, and, and I'd like to discuss it a little more. I mean, like since I was a little kid, I was a golf freak. I just love the game of golf. So I'm going to have a more expensive lifestyle lifestyle than somebody whose favorite like thing me, to do I'm, is fishing. Yeah, I'm never going to play golf, so I have no need I, for golf. I ruined the game. I write down a dollar on the check. I've watched too much The Price is Right. 